The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Lloyd, our show is about all the wonderful things that the Federal Trade Commission is doing to protect you and I as consumers. And we have a guest with us that we've had on before. She is absolutely wonderful. She's a veteran Federal Trade Commission attorney. And let me, if you haven't heard Betsy Broder before, you're going to just really enjoy this. And let me tell you a little bit about her background. Betsy Broder has been involved in some of the Federal Trade Commission's most cutting-edge work. As both a litigator and a manager, she's investigated, led, and supervised cases involving such things as telemarketing, business opportunity, online pyramid scams, and much, much more. She launched the FTC's ID theft program and coordinated the Federal Trade Commission's participation in the presidential's, the president's identity theft task force that took place, and they put together many, many wonderful and important suggestions for what should be done to remedy this problem. Betsy has testified before Congress. I've read a lot of her testimony. Excellent. It's great stuff. And she's also testified in, in state legislatures, and she's frequently sought by the media, just like us, as a consumer protection expert. She now has a new job, which we're going to find out about. She is the chief of the Federal Trade Commission's Criminal Liaison Unit. And this promotes the criminal prosecution of consumer fraud cases by the federal, state, and local agencies. And, you know, that's been really in the news as of late. You can find out more about her in the Federal Trade Commission at FTC.gov. And thank you for joining us all the way from Washington, D.C. Mari, it is a delight to be with you on your show. Well, we love to always have you. You are just terrific. Many people really aren't quite sure what the Federal Trade Commission does, and you've worked with them for a long time. Can you just give a little bit of an overview about what is the Federal Trade Commission's charge? Absolutely. We are the nation's um, consumer protection agency, but we also have jurisdiction in the area of antitrust. So we share with the Department of Justice enforcement uh, against antitrust practices, mergers, and the like. But I have always been on the consumer protection side because, frankly, that's where my heart is. And we also have broad jurisdiction there. So, for example, one of our marquee um, programs is the Do Not Call program, whereby consumers can put their telephone numbers on a list and uh, they will hopefully see a massive reduction in the types of commercial phone calls that they get at home. 
So we enforce the do not call list when people violate the list. We sue them. We get civil penalties from them. We also enforce um, lots of laws that help us sustain a competitive and healthy marketplace. Um, the MAGMOS Warranty Act to make sure that people honor warranties. We do things like people don't really think about, like care labeling. You know, those little labels that you have in your clothing that make sure that you don't destroy them by putting in hot water or not dry cleaning them. We enforce that law. We enforce laws that protect children's uh, online privacy. And, uh, but of course, a large part of our pro uh, program is to protect consumers from consumer fraud. And that's where I've spent most of my um, career here at the FTC. I know they do great work and they protect us from deceptive practices. And, and I love that you've done so much in the area of privacy because that information privacy has become a huge issue. Now, recently, uh, Congress has instituted the Financial Services Commission and the, uh, the executive branch has done that. How is that going to be uh, different? Um, is that going to take any the place of some of the things that the Federal Trade Commission does, or how will that work? Well, I think a lot of people understand that, that Congress developed this new uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that's going to be a partner with us. Um, we are going to work in tandem. There's not going to be a lot of changes. The FTC will still be very much on the consumer protection beat. Uh, we'll share jurisdiction with the Bureau in certain um, enforcement areas. And in certain technical areas, they will take on some of our responsibilities, such as rulemaking. But we are really not losing anything in terms of law enforcement. Several of my colleagues here from the FTC are actually on loan to help stand up this commission. So we have our people on the inside. I do think that we will have a strong and collaborative relationship and do even more to protect consumers from financial harm. Where are they going to be? Are they going to be very far from you in D.C., or are they going to be pretty close so you can coordinate, or how is that? Uh, you know, everyone's just a, a metro stop away, I'm oh. sure. <laughs> and, you know, you, you don't have to be in the same city anymore to be working closely with people with so many ways to do virtual meetings. Absolutely. Uh, so I think we, we have um, lots of connections. We're working very collaboratively. It's in everyone's interest to make sure that that new um, bureau is well-staffed, um, and I have every confidence that they'll be doing a great job. So can you tell us some of the things that the new Bureau is going to be doing with regard to maybe credit cards, or w what kind of things are they going to be doing? Well, I can't really speak for them, Mari, but okay. I can tell you that they're going to take a broad look at the various types of financial products that are out there, and uh, they're going to consider whether some of them should be sort of labeled as, you know, Caution, you know, proceed with caution. That they talked about having certain products, uh, financial products that they call vanilla. You know, it's good for everybody. There's nothing really exotic about it. And most people, this would be an appropriate type of mortgage or loan or credit relationship. And then things that get more exotic and those types of loans that got people in a lot of trouble with our latest financial crisis, those will be, um, this is just still very much in the conversation mode. But, you know, perhaps be more difficult to obtain, um, that there'll be more warnings associated with them to make certain a lot of people got loans this, you know, in the last few years who were not at all in a position to pay them off. And it didn't do them any good. And it certainly didn't do the housing market any good. So I think they're going to take a broad view and uh, an incremental view to approaching many of the problems that gave rise to this latest financial downturn. Well, I think it's great that they have a lot of your people on loan to help them understand what 
really what to do because I'm sure it's tough to create a whole new bureau like this. But they're pulling in all of the experts so yeah. um, and, and very top flight managers as well. Sounds, so we will see. Yeah, sounds good. Now, I, I kind of did a brief overview of some of the things that you've done before at the Federal Trade Commission, but you have, you've been there for a long time. How long have you been there? I started, Mari, in 1988, wow. which um, now we have lawyers coming, and when I say that, they just look at me as if <laughs> I'm such a dinosaur. But it's really been fabulous because I've had lots of opportunities to do many, many different things here at the FTC. Well, talk about some of those hats that you've worn. Well, someone once said, if you work in the um, consumer protection side of the FTC, you're never at a want, never wanting for conversations at cocktail parties, because <laughs> our work is so interesting and often very colorful. So when I first started here, Mari, I was in a division that did work on telemarketing fraud. And at that point, people, it was well before the do not call list, and it was very common to get telephone calls from people who offered you wonderful prizes, trips to the Bahamas fabulous jewelry, and uh, all you had to do is pay up front a certain amount, and you were guaranteed one of these prizes, the value of which far surpassed whatever you had to pay up front. (laughs) Well, okay, so you'd pay your $250 or whatever, and it turned out that you got some real junky knockoff watch, and you may have gotten a trip to the Bahamas, but it was in, you know, the most squalid conditions, and people wrote about rodents and insects in these rooms, but if you wanted to upgrade, it cost substantially more, if you could even get the dreadful vacation in the first place. So these were run out of boiler rooms all over the country, but mostly in Florida, I have to say, you know, southern part of uh, California, places with nice weather and large populations that were willing to work these rooms. So um, we did a lot of that work in the beginning. And again, we would go in and try to shut down the companies and get consumers their money back. And it was thrilling. And again, always having something to say at cocktail parties. You know, they'd say, Betsy, tell us one of those stories about how you walked in and then said, okay, everyone, move away from your desk. Put down the phone. Um, And and that was great. And then I, I managed and oversaw a lot of those cases. Pyramid scheme cases, we were working, um, timeshare, resale. A lot of these things haven't changed. And I was still doing that work when we started seeing a lot of this fraud migrate to the Internet. And so we developed a very robust program of finding and prosecuting civilly scammers that use the Internet to deceive people, but also use the technology of the Internet to rip people off. So interesting. I mean, kind of all this technology gave so much opportunity to scam artists. So back in the days of modems, um, we had lots of complaints about people who would get their phone bills, and they'd see that there would be these charges for five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars for phone calls to Moldova. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? And it turned out that people would go to certain sites, what we euphemistically call adult sites, and there would be software downloaded when they said, yes, they wanted to go see this free site that would disconnect their modem and redial up to Moldova, which had a lot of excess phone capacity. And uh, so they'd be spending their time on looking at these photographs and um, their phone bill would be like, you know, with this phone bill to Moldova, not so cheap to call Moldova, particularly since the phone call would continue until they actually shut down completely their computer. So, you know, that's how the technology was used. So we, we did those cases. I managed a lot of those cases. But then I was fortunate enough to move over into another shop that was standing up our identity theft program. And I helped work with our really talented staff in developing consumer education and outreach 
uh, coordinating with criminal law enforcement, collecting data and trying to figure out. Um, Mari, you know this better than anyone. When we first started working in the area of, of identity theft, no one knew how large the problem was. And I remember someone, a consumer advocate, said, it's massive. It's massive. We think it may be as many as t between 250,000 and 500,000 people a year. And, of course, the industry said, oh, overblown, overblown. So at that point, we had an economist who was the bureau director for consumer protection at the FTC, and he did what every economist would want to do. Let's gather data. Perfect. So we did a survey, <laughs> and we found that that 250 to 500,000 number was indeed way off. You know the punchline, yeah. Mari. It was like <laughs> closer to eight or nine million per yes. year consumers. Yes. So, you know, very much involved with that. I've done lots of other things <laughs> along the way that I won't bore your audience with, but now I have this fabulous job um, at the FTC of identifying our fraud cases that we bring civilly that would be appropriate targets for criminal prosecution and uh, try to get U.S. attorneys and local prosecutors interested in these cases and to prosecute these um, malefactors uh, so they get behind bars, which we're not able to do. It's amazing how you've been wearing this white hat, and you got to go home and feel good when you're able to actually accomplish something that, that helps so many people who have suffered from so many types of fraud victimization. It's just really a good thing to, to in your heart. I'm sure you feel really good about that, don't you? I do. I love my job. I love this agency. Um, people work here because they really want to work here. We have attorneys who have come from big law firms where they were partners, but the work was just the work. But here they feel completely committed to what they're doing. Not yeah. quite as wealthy, but they're <laughs> right. really enjoying their work. Well, there's all sorts of wealth, you know, enjoying your job, having job satisfaction, feeling like you're making a difference in your life, that you have a real purpose in your life, that you're doing something that is really changing lives. I mean, it's got to be great. It's got to be great. That is true. And you know that, too, from your own work, Mari. I know. But I, I do. I love the Federal Trade Commission, too. That's why I get you guys on, because I just really honor all the great things that you're doing. But I want to know, I don't know much about at all about what you're doing with this criminalizing. So why don't you tell us about some of these? This is, now again, I, for those of you who just tuned in, I just better tell you who I'm speaking with. I am speaking with a veteran Federal Trade Commission co attorney, and she's been involved with the agency since 1988. She's been doing fabulous work both as a litigator and a manager and a fearless leader. And right now, she has um, a wonderful new job. She is the chief of the Federal Trade Commission's Cr Criminal Liaison Unit, and she's going to tell us more about that and what she is doing. So, Betsy, tell us what kinds of cases are, are you dealing with now? I'll tell you, Mari, sometimes we bring these cases, and um, the FTC, I once said, we're sort of like guerrilla warriors. We move quickly. We move sharply. We can shut things down quickly. But sometimes the criminal prosecutors, they're more like a Sherman tank. You know, it takes them a long time to get moving, but when they do, you don't want to get in their way. Right. So uh, we are very, very effective at going in and shutting down um, loan modification scams, bogus foreclosure rescue operations, business opportunity operations, um, sweepstakes frauds. You know, we can move with a lot of uh, speed. But the people who are running these have frequently run other types of scams. These are not people who just sort of overstepped the line a little or uh, puffing about their products or services. They are ripping people off. They're stealing their money. And for those types of um, individuals, nothing short 
of a criminal sentence is going to discourage them from doing this kind of um, bogus business opportunity, whatever it is that they're running. You know, it's right, because like they'll close down one and just open up the next day, right? Exactly, exactly. And so we do obtain court orders that prohibit them from doing that. Right. But guess what? You know, it's like they'll change the name of the company. They'll, you know, change it. And, and it may take us a while to catch up with them. So that's why it's important when we see these big cases to um, try to determine whether they're appropriate for criminal prosecution. Of course, um, our cases are civil cases. Right. We have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendants have violated the laws that we enforce. As anyone who watches Law and Order knows, that they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendants in a criminal case have intended to do this harm. So it's a higher standard and, and heavier kind of proof. So they want to make sure that these are cases that are appropriate on the criminal level. But I'll tell you, I'm just going to run down a couple. I grabbed some press releases, Mari. Okay, um, great. Here's one. A Canadian man sentenced to nine years in prison for running lottery scam that targeted elderly Americans. Oh. So this is a case uh, that actually came from the West Coast. A colleague of mine in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles was able to extradite from Vancouver someone who ran a fraudulent lottery scam hmm. that targeted elderly Americans. So he would contact them by phone and tell them that they'd won some money, but all they had to do was pay up front the insurance for shipping the money or prepay their taxes, and people are very trusting. Yes, and so they sent the money, and that was the end of that. So um, the U.S. attorney was able to extradite Mr. Henry Inekwu, and he was uh, sent, uh, convicted and then sentenced to spend the next nine years in prison. That's kind of substantial. That is Let great. me see. There's, um, you know, foreclosure rescues. Everyone's very, very concerned about that. Yes. We had a case where there was someone who had first run a different sort of scam on, uh, I believe it was sort of a credit repair um, operation, and then he began this other operation uh, for fake credit cards, and then after that he tried to foreclosure rescue scam, mm. um, and he was just sentenced to 10 years in federal prison uh, for something like that. We had brought the civil case, able to shut the, the companies down so that they stopped harming consumers in this way, but it really takes the heavy arm of the criminal prosecutors to obtain what we think is the necessary sort of resolution to these cases. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't even realize that there's civil fraud and criminal fraud. That's exactly right. And so I think that what, if you can help my my audience understand kind of the difference. I know you talked about the, um, you know, the beyond a reasonable doubt when it's criminal, but I think aren't there some other elements that are a little bit different? Right, so at the FTC, um, we enforce our general statute prohibits unfair and deceptive acts and practices in commerce. It's pretty simple, but very broad and very um, a sweeping kind of uh, jurisdiction. Right. So what that means, what, the way the courts have interpreted that language is uh, it's a violation of the FTC Act to make a material misrepresentation that the consumer relies upon to their detriment. In other words, misleading the consumer's and they lose money. Right. Uh, it, and we also prohibit unfair acts and practices. And what's unfair? Well, for example, imposing bills or charges on someone's credit card or telephone bills without providing any service or without authorization. Right. And so we've brought a lot of cases. You know, if you look at that and, and you look at someone just kind of 
putting charges on your, your account without your authorization, how different is that than pulling out your wallet and, and pulling the money out from your wallet? It's theft. Right. So we may bring the case as a violation of the FTC Act, but it aligns very closely with mail fraud or wire fraud, which right. similarly prohibit these types of deceptive actions. And what they need to establish to get criminal liability in those cases, Mari, is that the defendant actually knew and intended to defraud consumers. We don't have to prove that right. in the civil case, but they do have that higher burden, as they should in a criminal case. So often in our cases, we have already developed a substantial record of telemarketing scripts, deceptive promotions online. Sometimes we have insiders or informants who tell us, oh, yeah, they knew they were ripping off consumers. That was part of the whole gig. You know, the, mm -hmm. what they told us is tell them whatever it needs to make a sale and then just move on to the next and never give them their money back. Well, right. that's going to be a criminal fraud, too. So we work very closely, but, you know, with an appropriate distance between ourselves and the criminal prosecutors. And uh, they have full advantage of the trial records and the depositions that we've taken, consumer declarations, the work that our own investigators have accomplished and to make our case, and that that is often useful in a criminal prosecution. So this is really a great example of federal agencies who can work together towards common goals in a very non-competitive, non-turf-related way. Uh, right, and so then and then you pretty much for all the work that you do, you put it to, you put the case together on a silver platter. So then you're probably the one who makes the decision. Like this one is a really important one that we get to to get criminal prosecution on. Well, you know, it works both ways. Uh, we. Um, sometimes get phone calls from the prosecutor saying, yeah. I just saw a press release on this case that you filed in my jurisdiction, and that looks really interesting. Can you tell me more? Ah. Or they may say, we've worked up a case, but I don't think we can make a criminal case out of it, but maybe you'd be interested in working this from a civil perspective. And the more we can communicate and coordinate, um, the better off everyone is. It makes for smart use of our resources, right? and we can track down the bad guys and make sure that they um, stop ripping off consumers. Right. And, you know, for the consumers who are listening, I don't know how many people realize that they can make complaints to the Federal Trade Commission. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you even find out about these cases. Well, I thanks for raising that because I'll tell you, sometimes consumers are the first line of defense here. Exactly. Um, they're the intelligence. So we get lots of complaints from consumers about either attempted or actual frauds committed against them. And consumers can contact us either online at ftc.gov or by calling our toll-free number at 877-FTC-HELP. And a couple of things will happen when they go through either route, Mari. And the first is that they can get access to information on how to respond and recover from whatever consumer fraud or identity theft incident they've experienced. Um, we have resources available in both English and Spanish. So when someone calls our hotline, they can speak to a Spanish-speaking case agent who will give them the information, be able to provide them with resources in Spanish. So that's great for the consumer to talk to someone who understands what they've been through and can give them meaningful advice on steps to take to recover. But it's good for us, too because we collect the information about how the scam occurred, how much money the consumer lost, the telephone number or website that was the basis of this scam, 
and we collect all of that information in a um, database that we call the Consumer Sentinel System. What Consumer Sentinel is, is a shared database restricted to law enforcement who can get access to our 5 million plus complaints. So that if you have, um, let's say the FBI in San Diego is interested in looking to see if there are any foreclosure rescue scams down there, and I can tell you there are, <laughs> they can go into the Consumer Sentinel system and search within that geographical area for complaints for consumers. And what they get then is you know, um, a linking of information that allows them to pinpoint the bad guys, to identify good witnesses for their case. That's really important both in making the case and ultimately sentencing the defendant. So when consumers contact us online or by telephone, it helps them because they get access to information on how to protect themselves or recover from these scams, and it helps the FTC and other the, the hundreds of law enforcement agencies that have access to this data in identifying and prosecuting cases. Yes, your consumer sentinel. I remember when you first set that up. That is so fantastic. And I'm always encouraging my local law inform- enforcement agency here in Orange County to to participate in that because they can add to it and then get other information and they can work together. And these scams can be all over the place, but that, you know, it can be, for example, if it's an identity theft scam in, in California, it can be prosecuted either where it takes place or where the victim is. So that really helps too. And the other thing that it does, Maury, is that if you do have your, your Orange County police are looking at it, they can go into the system and see somebody up in Los Angeles County, they're also looking at it so they can coordinate among themselves and avoid duplication of efforts. Right. One thing I think people don't understand about the Federal Trade Commission is that you cannot take a case on behalf of an individual consumer. Why don't you just clarify that? Because I'm always telling victims that call me, I want you to go and I want you to give a complaint either by phone or on, you know, on the internet. And they can't take your case, but they, but if there are enough people that have this problem, we can really resolve it. So why don't you give a little bit of insight on that? Well, you know that expression, let's not make a federal case out of it? <laughs> we like making a federal case out of it. Right. And, and the way you do that is it's got to be substantial. You know, there's got to be a lot of people involved. And so what we are doing is not representing an individual and in trying to resolve the problem, but kind of looking at it from a more holistic way that ultimately will help the consumer, but it's not going to, we're not going to, they're not going to be our clients directly. So um, the way that we like to help consumers who've had problems is to empower them with information on how to take steps to resolve their issues. It sometimes may require them to hire their own attorney under right. certain circumstances, right? because we cannot just pick up the phone and call the bad guy and say, you know, can you please give Maury Frank her money back, you know, or else we'll sue you. Right. We can only bring a case if uh, our five presidentially appointed commissioners find reason to believe that a federal law has been violated and we have the authority to do that. Like everybody else out there, we deal with limited resources. Right. So we need to find those cases where it makes sense to make a federal case out of it. So, um, unfortunately, you know, we can't, if we had unlimited resources, we could do all of that. And I uh, wish you did. With the resources that we have, (laughs) that we have to look for where we can make the um, biggest impact. Right. And you do have a wonderful website, ftc.gov. And if you are a victim of identity theft or you're worried about identity theft, you can go to ftc.gov slash idtheft. 
And there is so wonderful resources, laws, great things. You have a new con, uh, assistance guide for people who are concerned about identity theft. Mm-hmm. And you have so many things on all the different scams. You know, I, I'd like you to talk about a couple of the scams. You kind of brushed over them a few minutes ago. But I think it's important to say what the scam is involved because I hear people succumbing to these scams that you and I would never do because we're so used to hearing about them. But I think there are honest, trusting people that just buy into this stuff. So if you could give a little bit about maybe one of your most interesting cases or just tell us a little bit more about the facts of how these scams work. Well, you know, it's sometimes you can do everything you, can, you need to do to protect yourself and you'll still get ripped off. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example of that. There's um, a gentleman in Florida. I use that word very broadly. Um, <laughs> there's a guy. <laughs> there's a guy, exactly, um, whose name is Willoughby Farr. And um, Mr. Farr spent some time in prison for assaulting someone. He happened while he was in prison. He had a lot of time on his hands, so he thought he would start up a business. And the business was in the business of um, imposing long-distance charges on people's telephone bills. Uh-huh. No one made the phone calls. <laughs> they would just <laughs> create these companies that would impose charges on your telephone bills. Yeah, I so, had that um, happen to me, actually. So I, I am interested. All of a sudden, you look at your phone bill and you go, wait a minute. You know, I didn't call Australia. <laughs> yeah, but how often do you do? I mean, this would be a below-the-radar kind of amount of money. Right. And so it's $5 here and $7 there, but you'll multiply that by several million, and suddenly we're talking real money. Right. So, um, so that was a kind of an interesting case, and uh, Mr. Farr, I think he he was sentenced to about twenty years um, for that. But you know what nerve? Really crazy. Now, now wait a minute. Um, now, how, how did you find out about that one, Betsy? Was it was it consumers who called and they were it complaining? It was consumers okay. who told us about it, um, and we brought our civil case, and then the Department of Justice's Office of Consumer Litigation brought their criminal case, hmm. and uh, it was a, a very good partnership, and Mr. Um, Farr decided to plead guilty, ultimately, and um, 262 months. You know, it's interesting how in the federal court system that uh, sentences are always done by month, and that has to do with sentencing guidelines more detailed than anyone needs to know, but I can figure out with my basic uh, math skills. So that's about 23 years in prison wow. for um, this this type of crime. When I was um, doing cases, Mari, we had a lot of cases that would end up being prosecuted criminally, and we were delighted when someone was sentenced to two or three years, because a lot of times the courts just thought, that's like telemarketing, you know. Yeah, it's white-collar crime, up. yeah. But yeah. Um, now they're getting significant sentences. So so that's one. But um, And that's one where the advice that I would give would be we all have to scrutinize our telephone bills and our credit card bills and our bank statements because one of the ways that these crooks make their money is by flying under the radar and getting and putting these charges on your accounts where they're so small you don't even notice them. But, you know, after three or four years, there may be several hundred dollars. Right. And so this is commonplace. So people really should take the time every month to look phone bill, too. It's, the phone bill doesn't just bill for your telephone system. It also you can bill for any number of things on your telephone bill. And uh, so that's what you need to be careful of. And I'll tell you, those cell phone bills are, are a real pain to read. 
Those are they so are. different than, you know, your home phone or your business phone. Those are much more clear. But these, all the different things that you have to call them up and say, well, what does this mean? You know, I didn't mm-hmm. order that. So I think the problem is, I think for so many consumers is, especially nowadays, you know, the economy is challenging. People are working sometimes two jobs, raising kids, trying to get through their life, make pay their bills, and then to sit down every month and really look and scrutinize, like you say, and look, you know, very, very carefully at all their bills and their, their statements and see if there's anything wrong. Now, I do that, but I know a lot of people that don't do that. Well, as you say, people's lives are busy. Yes. But um, it, it's important to, you know, to take care of your financial health as well as your physical health, and part of that is staying on top of your bills and understanding what, yeah. is, what you're paying for. Right. Now, how about do you, you know, since you are so knowledgeable about identity theft and you started that program, are is there any overlap with what you're doing now with any identity theft cases that you're bringing criminally and civilly? Well, that's sort of an interesting question because in the cases that I've talked about so far, our defendants, the guys that we sue, are the same ones who get prosecuted um, for the same conduct but at a criminal level. Right. With identity theft, it's a little bit different. I mentioned earlier that we don't have um, criminal jurisdiction. We can't prosecute the bad guys. In the area of identity theft, what we can do is identify those companies that have not taken the appropriate steps to safeguard the lockdown consumer data. So we've brought a number of cases. I guess the most well-known is the case that we brought against ChoicePoint, a large data seller. Um, for failing to have appropriate safeguards for their consumer information, including consumer credit reports. Now, so we for, for those against- people, yeah, I just wanted to say, for those people who don't know that case, let's tell them kind of the facts so they understand. We did talk about it when that case first happened in 2005, but I think for, for my listeners now, let's kind of refresh the memory of what exactly was negligent on their part and what happened. Good question. So choice point, the mother load of consumer data. Um, They have credit reports, they have employment reports, they have lots of records on consumers that they sell for legitimate purposes to to the United States government, who are doing background checks, (laughs) to um, employers, to insurance companies, to whatever. So... um, But you can't get access to that information unless you have a permissible legal purpose to do so. So there was a criminal gang, but based, I believe, in Los Angeles, that were posing as landlords and saying that they were going to be renting out apartments to certain individuals, and therefore they were entitled to get copies of credit reports. Yes. Unfortunately, um, for the consumers, all of that was a fabrication. They were operating out of a Kinko's right. a, a terminal there and getting consumers' credit reports. Just facts to credit them. Reports, yeah. Just facts and using to them. them to open up new accounts, credit accounts, and they'd buy lots of merchandise and who knows what happened, you know, fencing it and whatever. So it was this massive, massive identity theft ring that had found the soft underbelly of ChoicePoint's data security program and were able to get into the system and still deceptively take a lot of this information. So we brought the case against ChoicePoint saying they should have done a much better job of guarding against these kind of intrusions. Right. And at the same time, the Secret Service, the Los Angeles, uh, I believe the Los Angeles County DA, if not your uh, California AG, and the U.S. Attorney's Office 
prosecuted the guys who were hanging out at Kinko's stealing the credit reports. So there we have a very complex problem, identity theft and data security. But we approached it from a comprehensive view, making sure that the companies are safeguarding the information and punishing the people who are able to exploit the um, deficiencies in data security. So that was a way that we worked very closely with criminal enforcement, but from different angles, looking at different sides of this multi-faceted problem. Right. And why don't you explain a little bit about consent decrees and, and what happens when you take these actions and companies are supposed to make changes and, you know, to be compliant with, with you know, the safety and security of data? That's a good question. So um, in the example of a company... Um, Choice Point was one, DSW was another, um, where they did not have proper safeguards in place. We call them in and we say, we've done a, a very detailed investigation. We don't think that every data security problem is a law violation, but when we find, when we believe that you did not even take the minimal reasonable steps to safeguard your data, we think there is a lapse that um, put consumers at harm, and it's a violation of our law. And I will spare you the legalistic details. Right. And we say, and we can either see you in court, mm-hmm. or you can agree to abide by this uh, judgment that requires you to implement an appropriate data security program to have semi-annual or however frequently audits to report to us any breaches of that system and to train your employees on how to maintain a culture of security. Now, they can either say, well, no, we're going to go to court, which so far has not really happened. Maybe in one case it has, and we ultimately settled the case. Or they say, you know, it's not worth it. Either What they say publicly is we didn't do anything wrong, but we will sign this consent decree and get on with our lives. Um, They do a cost-benefit analysis, and then they enter into a judgment, which becomes a court judgment. So everyone agrees to it, and then it's entered into the court, and they are required to comply with it. If they don't comply with it, they can be in contempt of court. Right. And we can bring a second proceeding against them to get damages from them for anything that – any damage, any violation occurred um, while they were subject to the order. But generally, I think we found that this has been a wonderful wake-up call to businesses that had not spent a whole lot of time thinking about how to protect this data. So that, that's the approach we take. But we know that it's really important to work with our colleagues who are going after the hackers, the ones who are trying to infiltrate the system. And, of course, there's an, a national security component to this, too. And uh, we're mindful of that. Betsy, you know, there's another thing that I, I think is so wonderful about the way that the Federal Trade Commission handles a lot of these consent decrees. And something recently, you know, when LifeLock um, signed a consent decree, um, we at the, well, I'm on a task force with the Consumer Federation of America, and we put together a task force on best practices for identity theft uh, services that are helping people, whether it's monitoring or helping them to rehabilitate themselves. And what we did is once that consent decree came out, we looked at it as guidance for what are some best practices for identity theft protection services. So it not only really makes a change with regard to the company that has 
violated or has had deceptive practices, but it also gives warning and helps other companies to look at what is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So well, I, I think that's terrific. And, and people need to understand, we don't tell, for a company like LifeLock, for example, sell your product. That's great. But you can't misrepresent what it is. Right. You can't tell people that um, if they use LifeLock, they will be protected from identity theft because you know better than anyone, Mari, <laughs> that you can never tell anyone that they will be absolutely protected from right. identity theft. Right, right, right. You just you can market what you want to market, but you can't lie about it. And you also can't have a million-dollar warranty that's confusing to people that they think that if they become a victim of identity theft, they're going to get a million dollars because they're not. So. <laughs> But anyway, I, I just thought I'd mention that, that that the other side of the coin is that other companies can look to these consent decrees and, and see, well, gee, you know what? We're doing some of these things that we shouldn't be doing. This is, this is guidance for us. So I think that's really terrific. I mean, I like to look at those for that reason myself. That's, that's absolutely right. We know we're all about compliance, and we achieve it and, and uh, encourage it however we can, whether through lawsuits or by um, the gentle hand of education, getting the word out, um, speaking publicly, doing you know testifying before Congress, whatever it is, so that people understand what the law expects of them. You know, we have a lot of business people that are in Orange County that can hear this and listening, um, whether it's you know on on the internet or on our podcast. And so, I just want to mention again too that you have wonderful resources for businesses as well on how to deal with a security breach. There are very good resources right on the FTC.gov for the red flag rules, how businesses can be compliant with that. Just a lot of guidance to protect businesses as well as consumers. So I just wanted to mention that as well. That's right. As I said, you know, it's all about compliance. So it's not just about telling consumers how to avoid scams, but it's telling um, companies, what they can do to help protect consumers, because frankly, they um, everybody wants to. I, I shouldn't say everybody wants to do the right thing, but you know, we, <laughs> they, they try to do the right thing. And companies um, can link, or governments, or whoever wants, can link to our website. Can use our materials. All of our materials are free. They're in the public domain. We share broadly with um, community groups that can get free copies uh, from our bulk order site. And people can link, adopt our resources. It's all in the public domain. And and the more people that get access to it, the happier we are. Exactly. And now that we've got the Internet everywhere, this is, you know, you don't even have to have the paper copies. People can print out what they need. So that's terrific. And everything that we have for consumers, as I said, is in English and in Spanish, which we think is really important. Yes. Yes. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. You're listening to Privacy Piracy, and today we are speaking with one of my favorite privacy experts. She is a veteran Federal Trade Commission attorney. Betsy Broder is wonderful. She walks on water. She's been with the Federal Trade Commission since 1988, and she's worn many, many hats doing good. By the way, all these hats have been white hats doing good (laughs) stuff, and she's been involved in some of the agency's most cutting-edge work, and right now she is chief of the FTC's criminal liaison unit, so she keeps getting promoted to all these exciting things, and uh, she's never bored. Now, let me ask you, so what are the most common scams now that we're seeing that people need to watch out for? Unfortunately, the financial um, downturn has 
created a perfect storm for things like foreclosure rescues, loan modification, credit repair. Um, people are sort of desperate, to, you know, of course, to stay in their homes. But um, the other side of it is, as people lose their jobs, they lose their access to medical insurance. So we have seen medical insurance scams where people pay up front for what they think is medical insurance, and then unfortunately they become ill or they have an accident, they get to the hospital, and someone says, what is this? This is not insurance. This is something else. So we just finished a big sweep of cases where we worked closely with state enforcers, state attorneys general, and insurance commissioners uh, to clamp down on those. And, um, you know, people are looking to get themselves out of tough situations, but unfortunately there's, there's no quick fix to any of these things. Um, I know that California has recently passed a law that prohibits advance fees for loan modifications. Absolutely right. prohibited. So if in California someone says, I can, you know, get your mortgage readjusted so that it's more manageable, all you have to do is pay $800 up front, red flag. Yes. You know that that's not lawful. So um, people should be mindful of that. I would say kind of generally kind of moving on to how people can avoid some of these common right. scams. You know, we, we want to trust people. We want to think that people have our best interests at heart, but that's not always the case, unfortunately. So we need to use our common sense. One thing that we tell people is never, ever, ever pay up front to receive a prize or promotion. And let me just kind of riff on this a little bit. If you go to our website at ftc.gov, what you're going to see today is a, a notice about, hi, I'm from the government, and you've won a sweepstakes. That will never happen. <laughs> but unfortunately, there's um, a bunch of telemarketing operations down in Costa Rica hmm. that have set up systems so that they call U.S. consumers. They use voice over Internet protocol to make it look like they're calling from Washington, D.C., but they're not. They're calling from, from San Jose, Costa Rica. Ah. And they say, we're calling from the Federal Trade Commission. And my name is Betsy Broder. <laughs> and uh, congratulations, you've won $400,000. But, of course, you know you have to first pay a pro um, your taxes. So, right. pay, And it's just people have lost millions of dollars, you know, hundreds of thousands, literally oh. individuals have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So never, ever, ever pay up front to get a prize or promotion in California, never for a loan mod, and be particularly suspicious of anyone who asks you to wire money to them. Big yes. red flag. Yes. Once you send money by MoneyGram or um, any of the other wiring services, uh, you can't get it back. It's gone. Right. It's gone. You know, you walk out of the store and it's like, I don't think that felt right. And you go back. Once you push the button, it's gone. So um, that, again, a big red flag. So be very skeptical of anyone who asks you to wire money to them. And, of course, in going back to the whole privacy question, you want to be very careful in the same way with your sensitive information. And what do I mean by sensitive information? It's your social security number, your date of birth, credit card numbers, passwords. You know, if you get a phone call from someone or an email saying, I'm from your bank and we need to confirm your password, no, they don't need to. Con no one should you never give out your password. And they should know your social security number. They're just phishing. Yes. They're trying to tease out of you information that they can use to commit identity theft. So I think these are kind of broad outlines of ways for people to be on their toes, to be alert 
um, to the types of scams that are out there. Betsy, it's like that old adage, you know, if it sounds like those, you know, those things where you won, you know, $200,000 or the Nigerian fraud rings that say, hey, you know, um, you're going to inherit all this money because we need to, you know, some some relative of yours has died in some other country and you didn't know about it, but here's money for you and we want to send it to you. Just, you know, just send this money up front for, for the insurance or the taxes or whatever. If it sounds too good to be true, it's definitely not true. It's an old <laughs> adage, but it's true. <laughs> That's right. The it adage is true. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I always hear these things, and this is one of the saddest ones when you hear from these grandmas. And we have retirement communities uh, nearby in Laguna Hills, and they're fairly affluent in that area. And so there have been these 80-year-old grandmas that have contacted our law enforcement agency that someone would call and say, I'm your grandson, and I, I can't tell my parents, but I'm in jail, and I didn't do anything wrong, but I need money to get out of jail. Will you please wire it to this number? And don't tell mom. Please don't tell mom. And they don't even think to ask well, which grandson are you? You know, who's your mom? Do you know what I mean? Once they start doing that, then of course they're going to find out it's a scam. But some people just go ahead and do it. And I think what would be really important is the banks and these um, places that, that help to wire money, if they would stop and say, what are you doing? You know, maybe that, because I, I don't think that the elderly people are really aware of that. And if maybe somebody at the uh, Western Union would say, well, what are you doing this for? How did this happen? Maybe well, you know that what? would be helpful. We actually, we sued MoneyGram. Oh, we did? sued MoneyGram because they had let down their guard and they actually had as agents some of the people who were running these scams. Oh. And so we said that they had not done proper background checks, that they had not um, done the very minimal steps that was necessary to protect consumers. And now they are obligated to take these extra steps to warn consumers to not actually transfer the money until someone picks it up on the other side. At least you have a little bit of a window there right. because of exactly what you described, Mari, yes. um, the total um, exploitation of the system. And um, it's called the grandparent scam. You described yes. it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard it from grandparents. That's what's so sad. There was one who actually contacted me who said that she she was smart enough, and I think, I don't know why, maybe she had read something of mine, and she was smart enough to ask questions about, like, who exactly are you, you know? And, uh, you know, where did you go to school and all these things, you know, to, to try and find out information. And then she just hung up, and she didn't, she didn't uh, engage in it. But there are a lot of them that did lose the money. So is there any duty on the part of MoneyGram or Western Union or anything like that to kind of tell people about these scams? They have taken it upon themselves to alert consumers to the scams that they're aware of, but uh-huh. it can't be, you know, that people send money all the time. That's the yes. business that they're yeah. in. Yes, So yes. Um, we, with the MoneyGram case, we've held them to a higher standard because um, – that's what we do when we sue them. We don't sue them and say, just you know, keep on doing what you're doing. Right. You, know, you have to be alert and have a program that would, that allows you to identify patterns that may suggest fraud, right? Um, and to put warnings up in the locations of MoneyGram. And we're working with them. Uh, we want them to be on our side. Sure, of the course. wiring companies, so that they yeah. can take the steps to protect consumers. But again, you know, the, the message to your audience and for them to share 
with their loved ones and their parents and grandparents is if someone asks you, someone contacts you out of the blue and asks you to wire money to them, that is a big red flag. People don't like to be rude and hang up the phone, but sometimes it's the best thing to do. Right, exactly. Or if you can find out, inf- don't don't give it to them, but find out information and then you call your local sheriff's department. That would be helpful, too, so that they know what's going on. Even better, absolutely. Or the FTC. Go <laughs> call the <laughs> FTC. Now, let me just ask you one other question that people may be questioning. Um, once these cases are prosecuted, how often do the consumers even get their money back? Well, I'll be frank. <laughs> you know, people shouldn't assume that they'll get their money back. Right. It's just the um, people that we sue tend to do a really good job of going through their money by buying fancy cars, going on great vacations, lots of bling. And, you know, we'll sell the bling. And we'll, we'll get their houses and we'll sell them, but it's never right. getting back dollar for dollar. So we are just in the process, for example, today we announced, <clears throat> or in the last couple of days, we're turning more than a million dollars the victims of a bogus debt reduction operation. Mm. And that's what we try to do. We, we freeze the company's assets so that they're there to um, redress to consumers, get them their money back. But that's, you know, the best possible outcome. We are not always able to do so because these defendants do live extravagant lifestyles. The money goes out the door. We get what we can. Um, the criminal prosecutors try to get what they can. But unfortunately, we're not always able to do that. Even those, you know, even Bernie Madoff didn't, you know, all the people that lost money with him, you know, they're even they're not going to get their money back either. Absolutely. So, you know, it's just unfortunate and it's sad and you can't blame anyone. And one of the things you can do is just to be a savvy consumer. Now, I know that you've testified in Congress. I've read your testimony. You've done a great job. Tell my audience how the FTC does interface with Congress in terms of maybe getting new legislation? Do you let them know what's going on and maybe what needs to be done? Yeah, and I think Congress trusts us. It, they, they rely on us for a pretty unvarnished look at the marketplace. We put a lot of effort into our testimony and our reports to Congress, and although we don't always they see things from the same perspective, my view, this is all my view, is that they respect our work and they consider us experts in the area of protecting consumers. Um, but Congress uh, is having a hard time passing bills these days. <laughs> right. So, you know, we can say what we would like. Um, they, year after year, they give us a substantial, you know, significant um, budget so that we can do the work. They think our work is very important. Uh, there are lots of things that we've testified about that we would like them to do for us to enhance our authority. But I think in the meantime, we're doing just fine. And um, as long as they leave us alone, all is well. Yeah. The problem is, is lots of times they give you more jobs to do more authority without more money. And so that's that's the that's the tough part of it. <laughs> yeah, but but we're really resourceful. And somehow or other, we've always been up to the task. No, I know you're terrific. We don't have a lot of time. I wanted just to have you go over the website or not, you know, just kind of tell my audience for consumers what they could find so that they know because they've been hearing all this great information. And then you can also tell the business people what they can find on the website. Absolutely. So consumers can find um, the FTC, anyone can find it at the FTC.gov. And from our website, you can get information on current scams. You can find ways to complain online. There are resources available in English and Spanish. And there are resources about um, talking to your children about online safety. Um, Another thing for children is this wonderful new campaign we have called AdMongo that teaches kids 
how to understand and analyze advertising. It's a game. Hmm. My college student <laughs> loves this thing. Hmm. Um, so lots of very accessible information to consumers, also ways for them to complain to us if they have been defrauded or if they think there's a fraud in the marketplace. And we not, not only does the FTC use this information, but we share it with law enforcement around the country, from local sheriffs to the FBI. And we use this for um, targeting law enforcement action. But our website is also available for businesses and has lots of good guidance on how to develop a good data security practice, how to spot identity theft in their operations, how to comply with the many rules that Congress has uh, given us to enforce. So it's there. It's free for um, people that are interested in obtaining a large volume of our free consumer education material. They can go to ftc.gov backsplash backsplash. I'm redoing my kitchen. Backslash <laughs> bulk order uh, to get free copies. Um, and we encourage you to go to our website and see all of the resources that are there. Yeah, I think it's terrific. I mean, I, I go there all the time and refer people to it all the time. And one last question. Um, we have about another minute here. What what kind of legislation do you think would be helpful that maybe the FTC is talking to Congress about? Sure. Um, the one thing that we have repeatedly asked for is the right to impose civil penalties in data security cases. Mm. So in cases where we have found that companies have not put in adequate safeguards for consumer information, we can get them to um, improve their ways, but we can't impose civil penalties. We just don't have the authority to mm. do that. And we think that would be a good deterrent, a, a good extra tool in our, our arsenal to get compliance uh, with businesses to do that. Right. Well, we appreciate all that you're doing over there, and I'm so glad you've been there a long time, and you have really evolved with the FTC and along with all the scams and all the craziness. You've been wearing your white hat, and you've been on your your woman night in shining armor helping us consumers. And you have been a wonderful partner. I always (laughs) love working with you. I know few people as devoted to um, their issues as you. So thank you for this opportunity. And and I'm so glad you came on so that people can hear all the great things that's going on there and what they can do to protect themselves and how they can deal with it. So we will have you back again, and we'll tell people to go to ftc.gov. Thank you so much. And we're going to be watching all the great things you're doing. Thank you, Mari. Okay, have a great morning. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Join us at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See pictures and bios of our upcoming guests. Look at their websites. Also, download podcasts and listen to archived interviews right there. And most of all, we'd love to hear from you. Write us an email and tell us what's important to you, what you're concerned about with privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.